0: This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about
1: helpers. I think that none of us are really doing quite enough about housing right now. I think at least in terms of of the city I live in, we suffer from the fact that property rights are prized more than housing is considered a fundamental human right. There's a political will issue there that allows people to continue to live in poverty.
0: I'm Faith Saley. Nancy Halpern Ibrahim is a real-life superhero. She's spent her life helping people in underserved and underprivileged circumstances. She's advocated for health care for Palestinian women, worked with the deaf community among displaced Syrians, and spent the last 28 years fighting for equitable housing and health care in one of the country's largest cities. Her current work at Esperanza Community Housing is funded in part through grants provided by U.S. Bank. Nancy joins us today to tell us about her journey to the belief that healthcare and housing are human rights, what it's like to live through a revolution, and especially her work with Esperanza. She joins us from California,
2: where she now lives. Greg, you know, <laughs> um, Greg, a few seasons ago, we interviewed Natasha Reed Rice of Habitat yeah. for Humanity International. And we talked with her about how housing is health, and health is housing, and today we have the privilege to speak with Nancy Halpern Ibrahim, and to broaden that conversation. Nancy, as you know, is a powerhouse in the field of public and community health. For three decades, she's run Esperanza Community Housing Corporation, a social justice nonprofit in South Central Los Angeles that achieves long-term comprehensive community development. Esperanza helps train health leaders and moves communities forward while preserving their culture. Nancy, what you do is, to me, it sounds so far-reaching and so broad, you know, from housing to health to to social justice. I want to really dig in and understand it all, but as a way in, um, can we start with that word Esperanza? <laughs> um, Esperanza means hope. Hope yeah. means hope. And that's where that's where you work, Nancy. Like when you drive to work, you're driving to yes. hope. Not everybody can call their office. Hope. Those,
1: those are my marching orders. That's very true. Tell and me just, more and- about. Yeah very happy to talk about it and just to back up a moment, I've been with Esperanza for 20 just over 28 years. The organization is 34 years this year having been founded by Sister Diane Donahue. It's our founder and first executive director um she was a social service uh, social uh, sister of social service and understood, way before um, the field of public health was even talking about um, social determinants of health, that housing is health and health is indeed housing. Mm-hmm. And um, I was brought in in 1995 as the founding director of health programs. But yes, we believe very strongly in the bones that um, housing is a fundamental human right that the work that we do really engages in five, six distinct programmatic areas that intersect because from a human rights perspective, um, in the context of white supremacy and um, racial discriminations, um, the disparities in health do not equally distribute. They tend to impact exactly the same communities with the hardest hit being many of the folks who live in South Central LA, which is the area which I call home, and where my marching orders are bringing hope alive as a member of the Esperanza community housing team.
2: I love that you use the words marching orders. And I love that that if you go way back, they came from a nun. You got your marching orders from Sister <laughs> Diane. Absolutely. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Do what the sister says. Hey, um... Uh, Nancy, for those who are less familiar with Los Angeles, describe when you talk about South Central Los Angeles, talk a little bit about the maybe the neighborhoods and communities that that make up uh, South Central LA.
1: Well, uh, South LA is enormous. It's a huge span from the area south of downtown Los Angeles down to the ports. The area that I work is known as the historic um, South Central that was known in early years as being a center of the Black community, a Black cultural center. So Central Mm -hmm. Avenue Jazz is one of the things that our area is known for. And in recent years, as um, the community development has really begun to make housing unaffordable wherever, the greatest um, thrust of gentrification has come from the downtown area and the University of Southern California, which is our nearest neighbor to the West. We have nine buildings of housing that is affordable to families of very low income, just sort of like the last stop before mm-hmm. people hit the streets. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's something that we have worked very hard to maintain and sustain, particularly through the periods of um the pandemic. But we also have a unique health capacity. We've been training promotores de salud or community health promoters for the last 28 years and have a large cadre of folks who have been trained through our programs to be the frontline community organizers in the area. Um, we have a large arts and cultural a component that you can see in almost all of the work that we do, and um, a commercial enterprise called Mercado La Paloma, which is our culinary and community hub that has transformed the food environment in South Central LA by making it possible for first-time family-owned businesses to take root and thrive. Um, and I'm proud to say, not only have we changed the food environment, which we intended to do, but uh, one of our restaurants, the first second generation, first time family owned business has just been recognized by the L.A. Times as the L.A. Times best restaurant in Los Angeles.
3: Wow. That's, outstanding.
1: that's exciting. So we have our first beard nominee and um, bib gourmand, and now the best restaurant in Los Angeles. So we believe very strongly that um, great things happen in South LA. And um, our work in the mercado, which is our economic development venue, Mm -hmm. is certainly an example of that. And then in addition to those programmatic areas, we are also very engaged in environmental justice work, and in public policy advocacy and in all of those things we work very collaboratively.
2: Nancy, like the consummate ED executive director y- you are, you 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 managed to launch right into all the stuff that we're going to get to, but you also managed um, to to uh, set up a challenge for me, which is trying to learn more about you. I did. I tried to do a lot of research on you, but you seem to be an inherently selfless person. And so, and so, <laughs> if, if if you'll allow me, I'd, I'd like to spelunk another word um, uh, and, and learn a little about and learn a little bit about you and where you come from. I read an interview in which you described yourself as an undergrad and grad student, as, quote, always eccentric. <laughs> so is eccentric a word that you feel you embody today?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and perhaps um, a bit, yeah, very idiosyncratic. And not <laughs> in the process, it all makes very good sense to me, but it has been um, a rich and varied existence starting um having been born and raised in new york city is this in harlem no but the upper west side you, the windiest oh okay are in the city so 85th and river nancy South, that's, where uh, that's where i live that's where i live <laughs> yeah that's that was our stomping ground and back in the 50s and the 60s it was a it well, was the a- sharks and the jets <laughs>
2: i mean I've, I've seen the show <laughs> you don't need to tell me nancy <laughs> well much as i
1: love let leonard bernstein's work and his for our lives our our world was a little less tumultuous but not entirely we had things like snipers on the roof and you know having to duck and cover Ooh. Um, the bedroom window of our eighth-floor apartment was one that we were forbidden to look out of, which, of course, we did. Um, and it was like the film Rear Window, where there was some vignette of interest and peculiarity <laughs> occurring in many, many of the windows across the street from the air shaft. So- that sounds oh very
2: euphemistic. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, There were reasons why they tried to put curtains between us and the world that was going on outside. But for us, it was a place of great richness.
2: How did growing up in an environment like that affect your curiosity about the world
1: at large? I think it made me very compassionate for people. And it wasn't just a prurient interest in what was going on across the way, but really caring for people and feeling a sort of uh, solidarity with them. You
2: continued on an eccentric path. Uh, Your undergraduate major was (laughs) very specific and unusual. Archaeology of the Islamic Middle East, which not every kid on the Upper West Side decides to focus on. Um, So so will you tell us about that?
1: I'm, I'm happy to. I was encouraged to go to State University, which I chose not to do. I had been a dancer for many years since my childhood and wanted to remain in the city to dance. And that became an issue of conflict in the family. And so I emancipated at 17. Mm. um in those years and this will sound extraordinary for those new to New York City it was possible on a humble clerical income to actually get an apartment by myself and support myself doing that at and seventeen at uh, seventeen. and um a couple- in New York City <laughs> in New York City. I can't get an apartment and afford it at 52 <laughs> <laughs> <My> <laughs> as well. when I came to California, I came ultimately to rejoin my family who had moved to the city, um, which was getting a little horrifying for my parents to support my younger brother and sister in the public school system. They came out to Los Angeles. We joined them in Los Angeles, my sister first, and a couple of years later I did, and loathed it, had a very, very hard time adjusting from the New York City Hubris to the West Coast. <laughs> um, and it took me a very long time to find my place, especially arriving in LA as a non driving adult. Very big challenge. It's a, wow. yeah. it's it's a tough city not, not to drive around.
3: in. Yeah, yeah, right.
1: And the first resource there was to try to find um, the museum environment, which led me to do some apprenticeship in um, conservation of Greek and Roman antiquities.
0: And how did that connect you to the education that brought you further along your path?
1: When I did begin to um, apply to school and entered UCLA, I started as a classics major, which morphed several times because I was not gratified in that major and moved to something that would uh, be broader, um, classical art art history. And ultimately, I found that I was not really getting to all the things that I was interested in, which really had more to do with um, material culture and the history of material, material culture. And so I did do this very odd undergraduate degree through the honors program. Um, I needed to create a major that satisfied all the academic um, check marks. Um, and did it in the archaeology of the Islamic Middle East.
3: It almost feels that you, you know, so much of your work is is preservation, and you know, mm-hmm. you speak so uh, vividly about um, historical uh, facts. And um, is is preserving history a, a central component of both who you are, Nancy, and the work that you do?
1: I think that that is probably very very true. I mean, I'm very uh, yes, and I'm sensitive to the remnants um, uh, from an archaeological perspective. I was not, never interested so much in treasure hunting as really getting to some of the pedestrian materials that mm. people lived by that really reflected the tools of daily life and mm. and getting a handle on those and, and understanding them well. Um, my Work as an undergraduate led me to my first uh, graduate school year, which I did in Cairo, intending to study the archaeology of Fustat, the original um, metropolis underneath um, Cairo, and had a phenomenal um, year of practice and study. Um, and it was a year that culminated in the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And oh, wow. At that time, we had two, two of our, my husband's brothers, brothers-in-law were in Lebanon at the time we had been planning to visit. And almost on a dime, I realized that I needed to think differently about the work that I would do from that moment on, was passionate about the work I had done, but also felt that I needed to be equipped with different skills. And so returning to the States, um, I began to explore different avenues within the health field where I might be able to make the best possible contribution.
2: You felt like that point in in your life and in world events, you moved from sort of preserving what you called remnants of history to Mm -hmm. helping support
1: living human beings. Yes, that history was changing just outside the threshold.
3: It had to have a profound effect on you as a person, as you said, and how you saw the world and your place in it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I think that my, my activism comes out of that particular tension.
2: Nancy, can you, can you tell us about how you then moved into community health work with women in Palestine?
1: Yes, um, that's been a very important part of my life. My husband is a Palestinian refugee. He was born in 1948, the very year that Palestinian villages were dispossessed of their residents on a forced march or worse. Um, their villages were destroyed. Um, and my mother-in-law And her mother were both pregnant during that exodus with two other um, toddlers at the time. Um, So my husband was born as a refugee in the city of Ramallah. um, Something that also has a lot to do with displacement and housing and um, housing security. Um, That has been very much a part of our understanding of the world. I was asked on a delegation to the 8th Annual Voluntary Work Camp in Nazareth, which was very much like the Venceremos Brigade in Cuba, where internationals come, do work, learn about the country, and learn about the disparities. Um, In Nazareth, um, it was also an opportunity to realize about not only the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, but also the second-class citizen of status of Palestinians living in what is considered the only democracy in the Middle East it was a very profoundly changing experience, and among the experiences that were part of that um, was an understanding that there was no reason um, politically, um, no major barrier that should keep my husband for applying for a return as a professor of history, which is his field.
0: And so that led you to relocate?
1: So together we engaged in our family planning and planning to raise our children in the West Bank. Um, Some of which we were able to accomplish. We moved over shortly after my daughter was born in 1984 and stayed there until 1989. (laughs) Um, So we experienced the first intifada together as a family. Um, and experienced the unique, the unique opportunity to experience a uh, revolution nonviolently that was the manifestation of all of my studies from civil rights uh, mm-hmm. experiences. So to, so to be able to live that was yeah. an incredible um, privilege. So what started with um, general strikes and shutting down commerce, um, continuing to teach when teaching university students was not permitted by the occupation, continuing to work on the delivery of healthcare, care um, when that was, was um, uh, proscribed as well. All of these experiences, which we did by natural right, um, in delivering service to the community we were we were part of, um, was was just an extraordinary. It was an extraordinary time.
2: What early lessons did did it teach you then about equity in healthcare at that time?
1: Well, it 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 taught me hugely that you cannot suppress a people, you cannot deny their human rights. Inevitably, it will turn. Um, to arms, but during the years that we were living there, there was a general consensus to maintain a nonviolent process. And so the only ones armed in this particular uh, scenario were the, um, armies of occupation and children had stones. And there were lots of very profound things about that, that, um, you cannot suppress the um, innate identity of a people and not Mm. expect um, strong and powerful consequences. Mm -hmm. And that for those of us who do feel and have skills for service delivery, those things must continue to be delivered even when the going gets difficult.
2: You, by the way, Greg, like we haven't yeah. even gotten to Esperanza. <laughs>
1: every every <laughs> single step on
2: your journey, Nancy. I'm like, is this gonna be a mini-series? It all leads to Esperanza. It all comes to that.
3: It's, it's all that. Esperanza. That's really powerful. That's really But powerful.
2: you you then, not but, and you then went to work with people from the deaf community in Syria? How how did yes. that transition occur?
1: Um, when we returned from the West Bank, I Started to pursue a degree of public health, um, which um, which I was able to do at um, at UCLA. It was a very excellent experience. the The end of which coincided with my husband being offered a Fulbright, and we chose as a family to go to Damascus. It was one of those pivotal pivotal um, turning points as a family because. I could either stay and work my resume as one of the oldest members of my graduating class in a new field or go with a family to have an experience living abroad in Syria. And guess is-
2: what Nancy chose? <laughs> <laughs> and
1: it was a, a greatly fortunate thing because it was before the um, very destructive civil wars that have been so damaging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But but more to the point for me, because I didn't have a um, a, a, I was there as a family member and didn't have any other mission to work in. I decided to focus after getting my kids installed in school to work on two things while I was there. One was to learn Spanish, (laughs) which Mm. sounds (laughs) odd. But in every mm-hmm. great city in the world, there's a Cervantes Center, and this was my first opportunity.
2: So wait, you enrolled in Spanish classes in Damascus. In, yes. In serious. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the Okay. Other- while you're working with people from the deaf
1: community, try- because
2: well, you're the- Nancy. Okay. The other You feel like
3: such an underachiever right now. <laughs> I know. <laughs>
2: The other ambition was really
1: to was really to um, learn the Palestinian deaf sign. I had worked with deaf community in the West Bank. I felt very deeply connected to them. And there with the Palestinian refugee camps in Syria, there was also a a continuity of of culture. And so I spent time first looking for the deaf community, which was a whole Mm -hmm. other mini series perhaps, and then being led um, to a very brilliant, um, phenomenal human being who is a cobbler and a deaf man um, who is one of three children out of a family of 10 to become deaf as a consequence of early childhood illness, and he oh, agreed to take me health. on as a student um, to teach me the language. And I spent some of my time in his little cobbler shop, hmm. um, and he spent time on on our side of town. Uh, and we would just would d- learn the language. Um, so is this
3: is this sort of building, Nancy, on your previous? Um, you know, public health advocacy work, it all seems like it's, it, it, it's just such a natural progression. Is do you, did you see it that way at the time or, or, or even looking back on it now?
1: I did see it as a continuity at the time because originally I had wanted us to move to the West Bank, um, and I'd wanted our children to feel connected. Um, as children who were children of two very rich cultures. My family is Eastern European Jewish. Their husband, their, their father is Palestinian Muslim. And we wanted to raise them as a family of conscientious beings in Mm. um, a country where they would learn to be native speakers. And, um, it that was not entirely to be, but when we were in Damascus, I certainly felt that there was a strong chain of continuity.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Nancy, a, a theme that Greg and I have been talking a lot about recently is language as access. Um, and yes, that mm-hmm. certainly is, I mean, that's yes. literally embodied for the deaf community,
1: right? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, when I was in graduate school. We had a maternal child health seminar, and there was a lot of interest in things like um, AIDS at the time, which was up and coming, and racial disparities. And the thing I determined to focus on in that course was the maternal child health and delivery of women who were deaf. Uh, which is another translation issue. I mean, the deaf community famously also requires translators. Greg and I first met yes. in the yes. context of a screening, the early L.A. Uh, debut yes. of translators. And so that film go. absolutely had a lot of resonance for me because of working in in deaf community and also the privilege of working in a community of largely um, latinx immigrants yeah um there's great continuity there and the program that i started of promotores de salud was really largely motivated by this sense that it was also created at a time when we had the most racist governor in the state of california the most outrageous terrible behavior Until more recent times, a governor who had said that uh, immigrant women should be denied prenatal care because they were just trying to come over here and game the system. Well, that's not only immoral, it's also fiscally idiotic um, and wrong on every conceivable level. So we began to try to think about how we could address community health issues and access to economic opportunity at the same time. And that's how we started the Promotora program.
2: Yes. Will you, so, so we're, we're leaping ahead as, Mm -hmm. as we must past a few episodes of the mini series to (laughs) Esperanza. And, and so Promotores de Salud, uh, Mm -hmm. what is it, advocates of health? What does that mean? Yes,
1: Promoters of health.
2: All right. And so so you train people within the community?
1: Yes. We have a program to recruit and train in a fairly comprehensive six-month period, comprehensive community health training, addressing um, the issues that are frequently seen in the community and and um, are are prevalent there, but also focused on primary prevention. Hmm. So, what can we do? And all of this very much does. Relate to having lived under military occupation, you know, being being a population that is not being served po- positively <laughs> by the state of occupation. That in Los Angeles we have populations too, whose healthcare needs were manifestly not being met.
3: And and what are some of Nancy in the in these communities? What are what are some of the more pressing healthcare needs or, or issues as you see them?
1: A lot of them are environmental. They have to do with um, poverty, racism, housing shortages, and the fact that people tend to live in housing conditions that are substandard. So exposing um, young children, for example, to um, lead hazards while they're also growing. So, The environmental Mm -hmm. issues are very strong. And there are also environmental issues that are um, make asthma among the most prevalent problems. Mm. Asthma is outrageously still a lethal problem in many parts of South LA.
2: I know this, that asthma is more prevalent in impoverished communities. Can you connect the dots and, and explain why?
1: One of the, if you look at housing, slum housing conditions, for example, or housing conditions that are not maintained. You might have um, conditions of mold and mildew, cockroach mm. infestation. Um, mm. All of those things are um, asthma triggers. Yeah, and yeah. where you have a population that cannot necessarily afford the health care or the pharmaceuticals that help um, control. A lot of the work that we have yeah. had to do is to develop programs to train generations of family members with asthmatics mm. about how to handle a an asthma episode. Also Esperanza to,
2: has something called the Healthy Breathing Program. Yes, we do. Right?
1: Yes, yeah. absolutely. And that comes out of our Healthy Homes work, which has been a very um, long-developed program that we started, actually beginning with um, lead poisoning prevention.
2: What you're painting is this picture that makes it so clear that there's no way to extricate housing from environment, from social justice. No. It's, it's all the same. It's mm-hmm. all the same. Yeah. And, and so what I understand Esperanza is doing and has been doing for, for 30 years is empowering people within the community. Is that right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, so. they can
2: not only understand, but you're giving them the language and the voice to to make change?
1: Precisely. And they are particularly effective at doing this because they share not just some idea of language or cultural competency, but they come from a similar lived experience as, as immigrants. They will share experiences. Their relationship is more dyadic. It's more mutual. We've trained people who actually live in the conditions to learn how to become part of the solutions and make that knowledge known to to others to so improve. Uh,
3: Nancy, I wonder. Oh, I'm sorry, Faith. I, I, I just wanted to uh, jump in with one question because you 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 said something um, just a minute or two ago that I I, I underlined because you talked about um, you talked about poverty when we launched an initiative uh, back in 2021 called the Access Commitment, which was our way of thinking about how we can contribute to helping to close uh, wealth disparities. Can you talk a little bit about how central to so many of these issues, these, these uh, public health issues, poverty plays um, such a huge part in that? And as a bank, are, are we focused on the right things in helping to close wealth disparities or are there more things that you think financial institutions could do to help catalyze your work and some of these issues that these communities are facing?
1: I think there's a tremendous amount that can be done, and part of the dynamic around um, poverty occurs in place. So, where people have access to healthy and nutritious food, where folks have ha- have access to um, economic opportunities and educational opportunities, and where housing is safe, affordable, and secure enough for children to. Um, grow healthy bodies in. I think mm-hmm. that none of us are really doing quite enough about housing right now. I think at least in mm-hmm. terms of, of the city I live in, mm-hmm. um, we suffer from the fact that property rights are prized more than housing is considered a fundamental human right. There's a political will issue there that mm-hmm. allows people to continue to live in, impover- in poverty. Um, to be unstable in their homes, to reach the end of um, a pandemic and find that they will never be able to pay their back rent, and therefore they're kicked into the streets. So we had 75,000 folks sleeping on the streets just four weeks ago, I think, when the last count came out. And yet, every week since then, we've had about 2,000 new households being evicted,
0: and those numbers come from the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority.
1: This is an issue. We can't disaggregate homelessness from housing. There has to be a political will to establish housing that's affordable to everybody at every level of need. And we are not doing that. How does
2: Esperanza address that challenge? You can you can educate and empower people within the community. You can help people understand public health crises, but there must be a limit just just fiscally to how many more units you can create in housing. How, how do you all deal with this?
1: Well, we work by, very, by our very nature. We're extremely collaborative in all of the work that we do. And where we cannot build more, we engage in policy advocacy. So we use our voice for progressive change, for um, pushing for um, responsible development across across the board, and try to bring those policies to bear in terms of new housing policy, new dollars that are coming into the city. Try to make sure that those funds are going to serve folks with equity and um, and and stability in mind. Collectively, right now we are working to support the mayor of um, LA, uh, Karen Bass, who has a um, urgent need to find housing for people sleeping on the streets. We are part of a collaborative called We Are LA that is trying to provide wraparound services for folks who are being evicted, trying to make sure that we can stave off the eviction, trying to prevent people from self-evicting, which folks will sometimes do if they find themselves being harassed to such an extent. They might leave before understanding that they have the right Mm -hmm. to stay or the right to redress or the right to moving expenses. Um, So we are very much involved with that mix at all.
2: Do you have a favorite story or um, a specific person who has gone through the program of Promotores de Salud. Um, do you have a story you'd like to share with us?
1: There are so many stories I could tell. Um, and one of them, just because it's led to so much of the work, was um, uh, one of our promotores, who's become a colleague of mine, was the um, was in a terrible violent relationship with her second husband Mm. is the mother of four children um getting involved in our organization became a way for her to learn more about skills of survival post-domestic violence and building a kind of community around that she's gone on to become a very, very effective communicator on that and also on environmental health issues, working to raise her own children without the threat of violence in environments that are not uh, environmentally degraded. So raising her four children, um, and this is is a case that actually um, becomes more complex because in one of the buildings where she became a resident with her four children, um, one of Esperanza's buildings is in a part of the city where we have four um, properties, uh, smallish properties with family housing. And we learned in 2009 that we're, we were being exposed to emissions from an oil extraction site immediately across the street. It hmm. had been dormant and unknown when we first started to. Um, to develop these properties. But in 2009, um, this new owner began cranking up 21 wells and poisoning the entire census tract and beyond with a particular hit against the building where this particular thought it was raising her children. And uh-huh. other families were raising their children as well. So what did you do? We all began to realize there was a problem and we started to organize. Uh, we could not get any information from the polluter um, except sort of gaslighting about mm. um, how the product was just Mother Nature's gift, um, that it was perfectly harmless. We knew from the response of folks in the community who were falling sick. Having spontaneous nosebleeds and uh, stomach uh, impacts, uh. asthma attacks, et cetera, that this was a very great problem. And so, with this mother, Promothora, and several others in this community, we did what we framed ourselves to do, which was in the absence of information, do a community health study and organized a door to door mobilization to understand what people's experience was in this new air environment. Mm -hmm. Um, We used popular education to get people's attention and produced a substantial community health study, which we then went to everybody, (laughs) the city attorney, (laughs) the the health department. Numbers don't lie. Numbers Mm -hmm. don't lie. And so utilizing that whole process, creating a telephone tree so that folks could report um, mm. when these emissions were being detected. We were able to shut this site down. Wow. And that mobilization, which we called the People Not Pozos campaign or the People Not Drills, resulted in the creation of a collaborative called Stand LA, which is Standing Together Against Neighborhood Drilling. Collectively, as a collaborative, we have just changed the laws in Los Angeles County and city that the extraction of oil and its processing is now a non-conforming use. So the lawyer, one of
2: the leaders Mm -hmm. and one of the leaders of this effort was this woman who you began the story by saying she, she was being abused. She, she lived in fear.
1: And not only is she a leader of this movement, her daughter has become a very fierce mm. spokesperson who won the Goldman Environmental Prize last year. And wow. as, a, as a young woman, second generation activist, has taken this issue into the international domain. So that's just one story off the top of my head. That I mean, you nailed only- it. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> you chose a really a good, good one. one. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, Greg, so I have there. to share. I have to share with you on, on the website of Esperanza. I was reading the list of values, and it's hard to choose a favorite. Nancy, I won't ask you your favorite on the list of values, but I I did save this one to read to you, Greg. We reject powerlessness. Thus, we are mentors and advocates. And, oh. and that story you just told it's a rejection of powerlessness
1: absolutely at all times that's it right there
3: yeah Nancy when was there a was there when did you first draw in your mind the connection between land use and public health was there a moment or a series of moments where that connection crystallized for you oh my gosh
1: um you know, I think living under military occupation was one mm. of the situations. And the exposures, yeah. the exposures to mm-hmm. hostile behaviors, um, and then also the degradation of the agriculture, the confiscation of orchards, of trees, of displacing people from generational homes, all of those things, mm-hmm. um, I think were very... Um, uh, poignant lessons for me. Um, coming into Esperanza, which I was privileged and recruited to join, was an experience where I, I really needed to find my common, common ground there. I did not speak Spanish at the time. Um, I don't believe in parachuting into a neighborhood and doing things at or for the community. So I really needed to think things through. Um, But when I first saw the state of occupation in South L.A. and what a police state we lived under and how the community really lived in fear and curfew and noise and hostility because this was ground. soon after the Rodney King riots, right, Nancy? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's right. That's right. I came in in 95. Yeah. Rodney King was in 92. It's kind of, um, you know, it's. That's it's,
3: what you got to L.A. in 95? Is that what you're, you're
1: we, we got yeah. back in 94. We came back from um, Damascus. Okay. 95 is when I came in, too. Okay. Um, yeah, I it's
3: stopped. very intense. Intense yeah. time in L.A. Yeah.
1: Very intense time and my daughter was um five in 92 and um we were receiving phone calls from all over loving relatives that we should leave the city that we could come to their house we could go to a cleaner neck of the woods because all of us were surrounded by rings of um burning tires Mm. And my daughter mm. said, why are they so upset? We know how to deal with this. The people are just angry. They should mm. come she and stay fine. with us because we can help them through this. Wow. And, I mean, I think that's a really. Um, At I mean, five years makes, old. <laughs> yeah. You know, it oh makes me on one hand, it's it's saddening that we've exposed our children to issues that were quite that real. Yeah. Um, and on the other hand, I think that we've raised some very interesting and thoughtful, yes, human beings who um, have a tremendous amount of compassion.
2: Yes, the perspicacity of a five-year-old saying, "But this, they're angry. They're they're angry. That's what this is about, right?"
1: Yeah. So it's all it's all connected. Um,
3: what keeps you? What keeps you? Oh, go ahead, Faith. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no, you go. That's a good question. I,
3: I, what what keeps you going nancy how do you how do you t- you know i was talking to somebody last week and this woman was saying to me you know i'm tired i'm just so tired and on the one hand i so uh, appreciate and have deep empathy for what she was saying but that by the same time you know i sort of looked at her there and said you know there, we can't afford to be tired i, I think about people like you nancy who have been doing this work for so long um, how do you push through the, the fatigue and the, uh, and dare I say, at times, probably even trauma um, that comes with doing the work that you do? What, what makes you keep going every day?
1: I have the pr- privilege of working in, uh, working toward a beloved community, which I consider our neighborhood to be. Um, I am very fortunate in the sense that my work definitely feeds me. There are no two days that are ever the same and in the middle of doing um, very difficult work in a community I love with colleagues I um, esteem and and love, that we can also break out into celebration.
3: Like, that's just great work, and you just don't see enough of that happening. Kudos. I just, I love hearing this.
2: While we're talking about, Celebrations at Esperanza. Can you tell us more about the success of the Mercado?
1: Oh my gosh, <laughs> the Mercado La Paloma um, is an adventure unto itself and a mini series unto itself. <laughs> once, once the Promotora program, which was in fact our first economic development program, it was started with a program, initiative the local initiative support corporation. we know lisc they well. had a um, season 1 yes they they had offered the organization a um an opportunity to focus on um a healthcare initiative uh that would also build on economic development so we did that we then began to think about what other ways do we have to bring Economic opportunity into this community. It's a community that is largely disparaged. Um, Folks are underemployed, um, uh, overoccupied, and underemployed, Mm undercompensated, disrespected. And we decided to focus on food because our community was one that had no nutritious food. It was mom and pop liquor stores, it was every Mm -hmm. manner of fast food joint. There were no places to really sit down and bring. A family for something nutritious and authentic and we decided to focus on that we began to invite would-be entrepreneur family families into a conversation to understand what was holding them back from entering into um, their own businesses what was holding them back we learned a tremendous amount about the barriers that they were facing And we decided that with this cluster of families, there were eight that we began with, that we would start by trying to help them develop business plans, develop a charismatic concept that would lead to their ability to produce their cultural gifts, their cultural culinary gifts in an authentic way, and build a business that would support their families. So we began at the same time to try to figure out what our role was as as a nonprofit, trying to support for-profit entrepreneurs and maintain the appropriate firewall. We decided that we would look for the box in which to house all of these disparate um, businesses and allow those businesses to build themselves out to spec. Um one of the barriers that folks face is that there's no business loan if you're a new immigrant. Mm. You don't have any collateral for a loan. You can't access mm-hmm. capital. Um as a as a reputed nonprofit we did. We had the ability to pull large business loans and structure them in a way that supported the build out of these individual restaurants. Um, while also pacing the the servicing of those loans through the rental agreements with each of these families. The mission of the Mercado is exclusively for first-time family-owned businesses, so there are no franchises. Yeah. Um, The mission remains really to help families create a business that will thrive. And we have done that in, um, I think, a really spectacular way while also changing the food environment and creating a I mean Nancy it's a destination yes it is a destination yes
3: and and that and is. did I hear you correctly Nancy so was the funding for um these businesses the, the funding came through Lisk. is that no. correct
1: no, no 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 that would have been made things a lot easier <laughs> we okay. we had to do our own we actually had it was a very very wild struggle because we initially leased the building that we're in only to find that the owner of the property was a skunk and mm. so it turned a two million dollar project into an eight million dollar project almost uh. overnight, and mm. as of the end of twenty twenty one we have resolved all of those loans, so we own the building now outright, but it's been it's been quite a struggle, um, and you and know what, Nancy? That results. that reminds
2: me. That reminds me of in the Esperanza Vision Statement, um, Greg. <laughs> this is language from that that I wanted to to read to you to hear your response. We envision mm-hmm. a community with a strong economic base where there are visible signs of public and private investment. There are banks easily accessible throughout the community where working families have access to financial services including credit and bank loans so that's on the that, vision board
3: that that is that is incredible and you know it was one of the reasons i asked the question Nancy in terms of how easy or difficult or or what what's that process been like in terms of getting access to capital and what resources um, these businesses, or what resources have you turned to? Um, obviously, I, I know we have our partnership, but um, this notion of access to capital is one of the critical components of our um, access commitment, mm-hmm. and particularly access for small businesses. Because I've said on uh, on this podcast many times, you know, helping small businesses grow and scale. Um, and create jobs is one of the most important components of the work that we're doing to close wealth disparities. Because I, I have a really good friend who, I, I borrow this line from all the time, and we, we talk about um, there is no social program that could ever compete with a job. Okay. Um, and so if we can you know, continue to support um, these small businesses, and oh, by the way, we just launched a couple of weeks ago a special purpose credit program Um, which allows us to expand the credit box um, for small businesses. So it makes it easier um, for businesses who otherwise wouldn't be able to get capital from U.S. Bank. It makes it easier um, for them to apply and receive uh, loans uh, from us. So um, it's really important. And LISC is one of our uh, primary partners. There's the reason I asked about them, too, because even those businesses who can't, partner um, and get resources from from US bank um, it's actually really essential and probably even more important that we fund these third-party um, community development financial institutions and I'm sure you're aware of CDFIs um, because they these CDFIs actually have more flexible lending terms and even our special purpose credit programs um, so if we can't help them we put a lot of resources and we make r- really deep investments in these third parties who are able to um, to help um, uh, provide those resources to those businesses. So um, I just wanted to sort of dig in on that a, a little bit, because I think the work is phenomenal.
1: Thank you. I think we we need to see much more of it um, outside. I mean, for, um, uh, for us, among the challenges are basically supporting the box, whether it's a commercial space mm-hmm. like Mercado La Paloma or the rental properties where families live during periods of, um, pandemic, when rent was not coming through, mm. and and preserving the mission of just stabilizing those operations. So I think the recovery is still ahead for us, um, sure. but we're very grateful that the commerce that the lives within um, among our residents has not been disrupted. The Mercado La Paloma continues to thrive and um, be a joyous. Uh, intentional community that provides hospitality on our terms with the current celebration of um, um, of the business that just was acknowledged as the LA Times best restaurant of the year one of the things that is most moving to me about that is that the owner who is the second generation um, business owner in the Mercado Um, determined as he was reinvesting in his restaurant and spreading out the space, did a monumental construction project, um, that he decided to reinvest in Mercado La Paloma. Rather than going anywhere outside, the chef decided that this was his community. This was the community that gave life to his father's entrepreneurial vision. And was his home as well. And so when you see that kind of reinforcement generation after generation, I think that, um, it, you know, it's another way that we do things tenaciously and in a very different model. Um, and, and I mean, that's
2: backwards. being eccentric, isn't it, Nancy? Yes, it
1: is being eccentric.
2: I'm sure many, <laughs> Tenacious? many of my
1: colleagues would it- agree with you.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, in the way that you describe the conception and realization of the Mercado, it reminds me of another one of the values uh, listed (laughs) on Esperanza's website. Uh, We prize dignity and self respect, so we create opportunity. Mm. That's what you did.
1: That's what we do.
3: Come on now. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Take him to church, Greg. Take him to church.
2: (laughs) Um, Look, I know that we're not supposed to comment on the way people look anymore. But Nancy, every picture I've ever seen of you, you have this awesome one long braid. And now I understand why. Because you are a living superhero.
3: What an incredibly full life of service. And I, I think we should just all thank you um for dedicating you know your your life's work um yeah. for the betterment betterment of our uh, of people and our planet and it, just a huge thank you nancy i can't think of anything else after having you know this conversation with you it, it has been you said earlier it's a privilege to do the work What it has been a privilege to hear you talk about the work and a privilege to hear you talk about your career and service so thank you so much
2: let's Let's go reject powerlessness and embrace. Let's do that.
3: Let's (laughs) Let's do that. Let's do that.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Real Good. If you like what you heard, subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon.